Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hello, I'm Jeff Boyd, a partner at Hydric and Struggles New York office and the regional managing partner of the healthcare and life sciences practice in the Americas. In today's podcast, I'm excited to speak with Dr. Bruce Levine, Barbara and Edward Netter, professor in cancer gene therapy and the founding director of the Clinical Cell and Vaccine Production Facility in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and the Aberson Cancer Center, Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. He is also the co-founder of Community Therapeutics and of Capstan Therapeutics, both spin-outs of the University of Pennsylvania. I had the pleasure to personally work directly with Bruce managing the technical transfer from academia to industry which would ultimately result in the first CAR-T therapy commercialized in the world. Since then, thousands of patients have benefited from his therapy. I'm honored to have him on the Hydric Leadership Podcast. Bruce, thanks very much for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. Great to be with you. You know, I have been thinking about those days back in 2017 and the approval, and I saw something that Kite had treated 13,000 patients I'm guessing Novartis, probably 10,000. And between the other developers, we're talking about BMS and J&J, it's got to be between 25,000 and 30,000 patients have received the commercial versions of CAR-T therapies. And then when one thinks about the clinical trials, we're probably around 30,000. So it's amazing to think what's happened over the past decade or so. That is amazing, Bruce. And I I just remember those early days and seeing the story of Emily and how many thousands and now tens of thousands of patients are living full lives now. So again, quite an honor. And to kick off this conversation, I'd just love to get your outlook for 2023 and beyond in the cell and gene therapy space. Yeah. So as far as approvals in the U.S., Coming up, I think we'll have a TIL approval, so tumor infiltrating lymphocyte product. Uh, There's one, lifelucel for melanoma. Uh, There is one developed in the Netherlands that has received hospital exemption also for melanoma. And then we have in Europe approved Evalo. It's for multivirus infection post-allogenic stem cell transplant. We have a T-cell receptor product for synovial sarcoma, a famicel that will probably be approved. And I think what will be a big milestone is in sickle cell disease. The first CRISPR product will probably be approved this year. So I think that's significant because we've got approval with a technology that was just discovered a decade ago, and it's reaching patients in an indication sickle cell disease where As you know, it's generally an underserved population. So I think that's a big approval to look forward to. And more broadly in the field, I think we're seeing more integration of gene engineering, gene editing, potency enhancements. We're making progress on solid tumors. It's not as 
quick as we had hoped, but it's tougher generally than the blood cancers. And then we can get into more details on the challenges and talent, uh, which I know you're interested in, and also financing and the regulatory evolution. Thanks, Bruce. Well, it is just remarkable to see this evolution when we talk about everything from the rapid translational science through discovery, through CMC, through regulatory pathways to health authorities. It's very important to understand how talent is so critical in this process. We'd love your perspective on what you think is important to attract the best technical, scientific, commercial, and leadership talent to the space of cell and gene therapy. Yeah, it is a challenge, and it's a reflection of how much the field has grown. It's grown in the progress of the science. It's grown in the companies being formed and financed, and it's grown in new people coming into the field. So how do we think about attracting the best talent is, what is your mission? Is that mission clear? Is it clearly communicated? What is your organization's culture and how is that communicated? Who is the leader and what is their connectedness to the science and also the organization's connectedness to patients? Now, not everyone has that. We're fortunate at Penn. We're an academic institution that does both research and patient care, and that is intertwined. And we have the ability to make that connection with people doing the science and doing the manufacturing and testing because we deliver the final cell product to the infusion center. So we have people that can directly meet the patients. And often we have patients and families who want to tour our facility and they get to meet people who are growing their cells and do the patients. And some of them, you mentioned Emily Whitehead, that turns out to be a long-term relationship and what a remarkable story and a remarkable family. And I think what we're finding in this area of medicine is it is the ultimate in personalized medicine because you're using the patient's own cells to treat their disease. So they feel connected to their therapy and connected to the people who are generating their therapy. You know, it is hard because as an academic institution, we've lost people to industry and then we have to recruit, hire, train, and think about retaining. And we've also put in a lot of effort into our training program. So how do we accelerate our training program so that we can get people into producing the science, into the process development lab, and into the manufacturing lab more quickly. Yes, thank you. It is so inspiring to go to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and to see these innovations coupled with the manufacturing, coupled with the treatment of these patients really all under one roof. And really as one of the first organizations at UPenn Shop to form a significant industry partnership how do you see the role of academia in industry evolving in the future? Well, I'll tell you, we had a relationship with industry going back 25 years when Carl June and I were at Bethesda Naval Hospital and we had companies approach us. And that continued once we moved to Penn in 1999. And 
it's just been an organic process of working with industry. Now, you mentioned Chopper Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I think it's also noteworthy that the first two gene therapies of different classes, Kimraya for pediatric ALL and Luxterna for a genetic form of blindness, both came out of Penn and Chop and out of Philadelphia. And Luxterna, of course, is Spark Therapeutics and MRI with Novartis. And now we have spinouts from our Center for Cellular Immunotherapy. So we've had that experience and things have just grown. Now, as far as the academic industry relationship, we're comfortable here with that at Penn. I saw a report last week that last year Penn had the highest licensing income of any academic institution in the country. So I think we have that established here. Now, it does take effort to build and it does take time to build. As far as how we work, I think, and I've said this to you before, we had to learn a new language in working with Novartis. What is a work stream? Bandwidth, right? I say we had to learn Novartis because that was a whole new way of working, albeit we had experience with industry, not industry of the size of Novartis. Absolutely, Bruce. So following up on that, there are many companies that are privileged to have you on their advisory board, supporting them as they enable new therapeutics. How are you advising these organizations specifically with regard to their talent agenda and building out technical and specifically CMC expertise? You know, we spoke about the time that we worked together, Bruce, and it was clear that with these therapeutics and with this modality, CMC is critical and really moved, as I like to say, to the front of the classroom. So how are you advising these organizations that you support? Well, first, we should probably do my disclosure. So you mentioned I'm a co-founder of Tumidity that was recently acquired by Kite and of Capstan Therapeutics. I serve on the scientific advisory boards of Akron Bio, Avectus, Immuniel, Immusoft, Innate Bio, Warrior Biotech, Oxford Biomedica, Thermo Fisher Pharma Services, UTC Therapeutics, and Vicelix. So each of those has their own unique niche and stage. Now what I'm advising is where they are in their development pathway and what they're asking of me coming at it, being trained as an immunologist with expertise in manufacturing. And the opportunity to gain insight into where these companies, where the technology is going, I think is just by virtue of having been around so long, honestly, and worked with industry and worked in academia and seen the evolution of the field. So each of those, I think, is complementary for me to gain some insight, but also provide some insight back to each of these companies. Again, it's like choosing favorite children, but just to pick one, Immuniel and Carl June and I both serve on the SABF Immuniel. They're developing CAR T-cells in India with the praises that the therapy needs to be much more affordable. So how can we reduce the cost of manufacturing, the cost of analytics to provide a therapy to a country of well over a billion people. It's just not feasible to do it as we do it in the U.S. And I think 
there are lessons that we can take from Emmanuel as they're proceeding along in their development. Because if we have a hit in a solid cancer, there aren't enough humans on Earth to be able to manufacture for indications that are 10 to 20 times more prevalent than the approvals that we have in the blood cancers. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. Really had no idea that you were supporting so many companies, and that is remarkable and supporting in, in their journey. Bruce, I want to transition to a topic around automation, something that we spent a lot of time speaking about, I should say, in the early days. And Hydrogen Struggles in 2022 conducted a survey where technology, automation, AI, data, digital was the top external disruption factor that was noted amongst organizations. How do you see cell and gene therapies evolving with regard to automation, digitization, and utilization of data to drive future innovation? Well, that's a big topic and it's critical to progress. So take automation first. We use devices that are partially automated. There are some devices that are marketed as automation for multiple steps. I think it depends what stage you are in development. We're in early stage, we're at the bench, we're in scale up, we're in first in human phase one clinical trials. For us, automation is helpful, but to a limited degree because we have processes that do change and we may be swapping out. And if we have a process that is fully automated end to end, then we have to go back and reconfigure a device, software, disposables. Now, on the other hand, for a product that is commercialized, where a process is logged, then automation makes more sense. And it makes more sense also where the units that are being produced are high. If we're in phase one and we're doing clinical trials of, say, 10 or 20 patients and we fully automate it, and then we make a change, then we've got to go back and do all those changes. Now, as far as digitization, this also is critical to be able to treat more patients. The amount of effort and labor spent on documentation, on quality assurance that we spend at phase one is very high. When one gets to commercialization and you're talking about treating 10 or 20,000 patients and more, you just can't make that tenable in the long term. So I'm encouraged by the investment, just taking together automation and digitization. I'm very encouraged by the investment in tools and equipment and digital platform developers. And I think that's essential for progress in the field. And a big part of my job now in my position currently is evaluating these new technologies and assessing how they might fit into what we can do here at the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at the University of Pennsylvania and how they might fit more broadly in the field. And that's where those advisory boards come in. And also my position as immediate past president of the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy. So it's a very, very dynamic time, Jeff. Bruce, one last question. I have known you to be somebody, in spite of how remarkably busy you are, you've always taken an interest in mentoring future technical leaders in the industry at a very personal level. 
So what advice would you give to the C-suite of these companies regarding those executives personally investing in the mentorship and the development of their teams? Well, I can make the first part of my answer short and sweet. Basically, no team, no progress. We have integrated teams from the laboratory. I mentioned process development, manufacturing, quality control, quality assurance, regulatory, and clinical. Everyone has to work together. And secondly, mentoring is a responsibility and a necessity. We all know there's a talent shortage. Those of us who have been in the field for a while have a responsibility to mentor early stage professionals and also people that may be later in the career, but coming in new to cell and gene therapy. An example of mentoring that long-term colleague that I've been privileged to know in the field is Kristen Heggie. And Kristen was at a company called Cell Genesis that conducted the very first CAR T-cell trials. She moved to CellGene that was acquired by BMS and just recently, within the past week, retired to pursue her lifelong dream of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, all 2,685 miles of it. And she's blogging about it, but she also thought, I'm going to do something more, which is to turn this into a fundraiser to benefit early career women at the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at Penn. And so I think that's emblematic of our field where whether it's investigators, clinicians like Kristen or patients and families like Emily, Gary and Tom Whitehead, people just feel the need to give back. And I think that is inspiring to all of us and it's a real privilege to be a part of it. Bruce, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.